They say what you put into something is what you take out of it. And it's true. To me, nothing is more interesting than what a critic brings into a movie. Do they like the director or cast? Are they plugged into the buzz? What do they think of the trailers? The point of this podcast, then, is to give listeners a chance to hear from a top film critic, both before and after they've seen a film, and to see how people's expectations shape their opinion of a movie itself. My name is Matthew Modigal, and welcome to After the Credits. Well, welcome to this week's episode, the A Wrinkle in Time episode of the After the Credits podcast. And we've got another returning star uh, coming back for this episode, um, a guest of ours who's been on the show before, Karen Hahn. Karen, will you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you write, and the type of writing that you do? Sure thing. Um, so right now I, I, I write about uh, film, TV, music, video games, pretty much whatever. Um, I write for the Daily Beast, Slash Film, Vulture, Vice, um, basically wherever will have me. Uh, and last time I was on, as you may remember, it was to talk about uh, DC properties, which is always fun. Yeah, so we are switching, for those of you that care about this, not that we do, but we are switching <laughs> from Warner Brothers to uh, back to Disney, and we're going to be talking about A Wrinkle in Time, which is a movie that a lot of people have been very excited about, I think, for a while and for um, a bunch of different reasons. So let's start this conversation then. Um with probably the most recent part of it, because I was, you know, I, I work full time, so I tend to check in on film Twitter during like breaks and at the end of the day. And today I checked film Twitter and it seemed like everything had burned down because a <laughs> few people gave Wrinkle in Time a positive review, even though they've had some flaws with it, which kicked off this really weird and progressively ugly discussion about whether or not it is okay to talk about intention in film and whether or not is it okay, it is okay to like movies for what they set out to do, not for what they accomplish. So let's start with the biggest and heaviest piece of that puzzle, um, intent. You know, Ava DuVernay is somebody that a lot of people really like. Um, she's somebody that certainly most people that write about film are rooting for. What do you think about sort of the reception and the ongoing discussion about A Wrinkle in Time? I don't know. I'm very nervous just because um, I remember when people started, uh, when the rumors kind of started, like pre um, the release, when people had already seen it for like press screenings and stuff, people were saying that it wasn't very good. And that a lot of that talk was kind of grounded in them saying that they kind of expected it based on the trailer. I have to say the trailers looked pretty good to me. Um, so I've been experiencing this kind of anxiety over whether I'm going to be one of the people who falls for it or if I'm going to have a similar experience of being very disillusioned by what's going on. I have definitely lost the thread of my thought at this point, but um, I don't know. I, well, then I in like... that way, you are mirroring the Twitter conversation perfectly. Then. <laughs> I, that's probably true. I like Ava DuVernay, and I also... Um, I feel like it's also a very difficult argument when you're trying to balance intent with what actually happens because um, intent is important but it's a very delicate kind of balance um, I, while you were mentioning that I was thinking about Mute the Duncan Jones film that just came up on Netflix where everything about the intent of that movie I really like and there's so many ideas in it that I'm so interested in but if I had to give a one sentence recommendation or vice or the opposite of that to one of my friends i would probably say if it's on netflix so you can stream it but i wouldn't say go out of your way to see this movie you know 
No, yeah, I'm, I have not seen it, but that seems to be one of the more favorable reads yeah. um, based on what I've heard. <laughs> I was, I was know, talking to one of my friends about it because immediately after I saw the movie, she was like, okay, you need to explain to me why you like this movie. And the first thing that I said back to her is I'm so afraid that I'm actually going to end up being caught like in public saying I like Mute because I didn't want to give it that much credit but at the same time I couldn't be like I hated this movie because there was so much in it that I liked yeah and that seems to be at least from some of the the positive buzz that I've seen you know some um, critics who I really trust that that has been their opinion of yeah. in time is that you know even if you don't like it there's a lot of positive stuff in there that they enjoyed and kind of the flip side of that conversation too mm-hmm. and I want to ask you about this I guess is is that idea of culture criticism versus film criticism and where we are right now you know, I wrote a, a piece a few years ago, two years ago for Film School Rejects when Stranger Things had just come out and we were having the heart of that discussion about is it good, is it bad? You know, and I, I wrote a piece that I reread tonight because I was like, was I off base about why cultural criticism, um, there is that people should not forget film criticism and television criticism in the favor of cultural criticism. My point in that article was more along the lines of I don't like people that say the Stranger Things audience is bad, ergo Stranger Things is bad. You know, and I think we see that every now and then. I don't. I don't feel like this is that sort, same sort of thing. There aren't people that are saying that if you root for a Wrinkle in Time, you know, you're bad because the movie's bad or vice versa. So, how do you? You know, that has been the real crux of a lot of the arguments I've seen today. How, how do you kind of weigh those two instincts when you're reviewing a film? Cultural criticism, you know, is trying to figure out the context and the reception it's going to have in the time that it's released, versus like, is the movie objectively good or bad? That's really deep. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. This is this is heavy stuff out of the gate, but it's been it's been all over social media today. So I'm like, oh, we're just we're gonna talk about it. We're this gonna dive right in. Philosophy cast. Um, I don't know. I've always in thinking about it, the way that I kind of visualize the discussion in my head isn't coming at two prongs. Rather, it's um, the mental image that I immediately got was I don't know if you if you've played any of the kind of later generation Pokemon games. But you can kind of like adjust the metrics of uh, your Pokemon's like personality by like feeding them different things. And it's a grid on like a circle that's a few points are set around it. But the shape in the middle, which like denotes what it's going to be like, like shifts around a lot to varying degrees around that circle. And that's how I kind of feel about um, criticism as a whole. Um, Because there's it's not just... Because I feel like you can talk about context in terms of film criticism as well as cultural criticism, which kind of makes different uh, points in the metrics that you end up having to t- uh, take into account when you're writing about a film or trying to review it. Um, and it's hard, I think, to discuss just because there's no one balance and even like the slightest kind of difference in what this does well in terms of like artistically or visually or what it does well in terms of uh, providing a platform for people to think or speak about certain issues like in the political or cultural climate um, like it won't necessarily balance in the same way and can be thrown off so easily from movie to movie uh, which I guess is kind of a non-answer in the end but um, I think it is one of those points where you ha- kind of have to go with your gut instinct of what do I feel about it um, and then regurgitate that and then talk about the different things in the movie or TV show or whatever you're discussing to kind of back that up and explain different uh, parts of your reaction to it. That was very long winded. Does that make sense? No, that's perfect. Um, and kind of, 
you know, along those lines too, I think you, there's probably an element of um, what community you belong to and how that plays into that as well. Because I know that when I was, you know, when I was in my teens or early twenties and I, you know, I was, I was the pretentious film liker. I was the person that watched good <laughs> films and the people around me didn't watch good movies. And so I cared very much about those kind of, you know, subjective absolutes of whether or not a movie is good. And if people liked a movie that I didn't think was good, they were wrong. And it was my job to convince them otherwise. Right, but, right. you know, and, and that I think we see that, you know, we, we talked about fandom a lot when we were talking about DC. Mm. Um, I think we sort of see that in pieces too with online communities where they sort of use it as a gatekeeping thing where like there are absolutes in their fandom mm-hmm. and less for them means more for someone else and vice versa and i don't know like for a lot of the the critics that i personally relate to the people that i um you know, admire the people that i try and emulate i just feel like you like what you like man and your job is to make the case yeah, yeah um, exactly. and if you make a good case it doesn't matter what lo- what logic you use and i think that goes right in line with what you were saying about like you know it, it is a shifting scale there is no right mm-hmm. answer and people that think that it should be all one or the other you know some of the best film critics that i read on the regular would probably be described as culture critics and some of them are pure mm-hmm. film critics and there's certainly it is certainly a big enough tent for both to thrive when it comes to the film industry yeah Absolutely, because they're both important conversations to be having. So I'm gonna let's let's stop with the really t- tough stuff because I feel like I asked you some <laughs> hard. Like the first ten minutes of this are just like... <laughs> some serious life-altering questions out of the gate. So let's talk about Wrinkle in Time, the movie, the movie that we're about to see. What we're gonna think about it. Um, did you ever read? Because I know a lot of people when the the movie came out decided to read or reread it. Did you ever read the original book? Oh. I didn't reread it, so I'm kind of just going off my uh, memory of having read it as a kid. Um, I'm not sure if that's a good or bad decision on my part, but it's just a matter of time at this point where I don't have the time to go back to the book before I see the movie. Um, sure. What is what is it like? What is your childhood memory of the book? Um, it's do for you. Pretty, what do you remember? It's pretty pretty dismal. Like I don't remember a lot at all. I remember liking it, and I remember. Um, I pretty much the bottom line is I remember liking it. I don't remember almost any of the details or anything else. Okay. So this is a pretty clean slate for you then. Yeah. That's a good way to go into it. Um, now we, the movie, you know, I don't, I haven't read the book, so I don't know much um, going in. I know that it is sort of unabashedly, um, in a good way, it, it seems to be a uh, fantasy, and particular a fantasy for children. Mm-hmm. I don't. I think this is sort of the conversation we have every now and then about YA and why you know it's not made for adults. I think the same kind of argument could come into play here, based on what I've heard, anyways. Um, probably no arguing that the cast is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Um, this is this is a powerhouse, not only of women of color, but just really super talented actresses that are going to good or bad rip up the screen you know who are you looking forward to seeing in this movie Ooh, um oprah i guess <laughs> which is probably the easy answer but i'm also really interested to see storm reed i haven't is this her first movie role i don't think i've seen her in anything before oh no she's been in a bunch before i just looked her up but this is the first time i've seen her in anything and it seems like she's very she has a very kind of like self-possessed very grounded air that i think will be exciting especially because i feel like good kid actors are sometimes very hard to find yeah yeah it is tough it is tough to find them and it is tough to maintain like a career out of that so it's the flip side anytime i feel like i see a really good uh, child actor performance i'm like 
you were really great now and i feel like i'm just like praying that you're not going to fall <laughs> apart um in the next couple of years or get like you know eaten up and spit out by the industry as a whole she does seem to she again trailers but she seems to have really have a strong presence on screen and she seems to be able to you know <laughs> hold her own against some pretty big names in the industry yeah for sure i mean everyone in it is pretty famous yeah this this movie does not lack for famous people uh, if this was if this is ava duvernay shooting her shot then she had everybody <laughs> you could possibly hope for to help yeah for sure let's let's talk about her too because we've you know i feel like she has been um you know, first of all just a super important figure uh, in hollywood for the last few years but mm -hmm. We've really only seen two movies, I think, over the last four or five years. One is The 13th, which is her doctor documentary um, mm -hmm. about the penal system. And then, of course, Selma, um, which is her documentary about the life of, or not documentary, her movie about <laughs> the life of Martin Luther King Jr. It'd be impressive if it was a documentary, yeah. <laughs> so it felt like, at times, it felt like a documentary. Um, so what do, like, what is, what is Ava DuVernay to you? You know, what kind of a filmmaker is she? Have you have, do you like the things that she's done? Do you like the awareness that she creates in Hollywood for diversity and diverse voices? Like, where do you stand on her on the scale of positive to super positive? Um, pretty positive. Um, as you were saying, like the kind of championing that she does for women and women of color's voices uh, in the industry. Um, I feel like she's one of the people who speaks um, the the loudest and also the most like does the most in order to try to um, raise awareness. And also her movies are just so kind of strongly voiced. I feel like even if you do or don't like them, you have to admit that there is kind of a very singular uh, point of view in them. And it's, it, there's a clarity to her work that I really admire. Yeah, a lot is always made when she has a film out uh, about her background as a publicist, that she mm -hmm. came to being a filmmaker as a publicist. And I, I think... I think it does provide insight into how she thinks. You know, I think that she is, there's an element of persuasion. There's an element of getting the audience on her side, on her character's side in the movies that um, is, is sort of unique in this moment. And the way that she she goes about building out these things and making us care about them does kind of, it's, it's you know, marketing can sometimes be a dirty word in Hollywood, but I think she's found a way to really leverage that and make her movies better for it. Yeah, for sure. So we've got we've got this amazing cast. We've got this amazing filmmaker, and then we have the the book that you half remember, um, or not <laughs> even half remember. remember. Yeah, barely, barely remember. Cover. Yeah. So when you um you know not knowing a ton about it, we've talked a little bit about some of the the reception too. Like, what has been some of the the buzz? I guess the overwhelming buzz from the people that you trust the most on this movie. Um. I, I don't know. I mean, looking at my timeline, it was more of a, it felt more like a half and half where half of the people were saying it's this really just like glitzy mess. And other people were saying it hit me where I live and I cried for the entire runtime. Um, both of which are things that I've experienced while watching movies similar to A Wrinkle in Time. So I'm a bit nervous, but excited to see where I end up coming out on it. Um, yeah, it's been, I, I feel like nobody has had a middle ground on it. Like nobody's been like, oh, it's okay. Like everyone has been like, I hated it or I loved it. And what do we make of movies like that? Just sort of in general, you know, when, when you get a sense that there's a movie coming out that is either hated or love it and not a lot in between, mm -hmm. like where do you, where do you go to um, when you're thinking about it, when you're going into the, seeing it and writing about it? Like where does, where does your gut take you for those polarizing films? 
Um, at that, that's usually the point where I try to kind of shut off any receptors that I have to uh, being swayed by knowing somebody else's opinion before it and just try to go in and experience it, which is really hard just because I'm speaking for myself. I'm very plugged in all the time. So I tend to read a lot of takes before I go into the theater if it's something that I'm seeing like in wide release and not able to um, get to the press screening for. Um yeah, I don't know. You just kind of have to... It's another instance of trying to have to um, trust your gut at that point and just know that either you're going to like it or you're not going to like it. And it's... I, uh, I feel... I can't exactly put my finger on it, but I think the last couple of times that a movie has been that polarizing, I've gone in and felt pretty lukewarm about it. Really? Because I was going to say, knowing uh, you know a bit of the movies that you champion, of course, A Cure for Wellness being on that list and some others... <laughs> I, I, yeah. I would have described yeah. you as someone who kind of goes for those like polarizing films. I, it's... That's actually fair. I, again, to bring up Mute again, one of my friends, when they figured out that I was kind of hedging my opinion on it, immediately just went like, Karen, like, just because everyone else doesn't like it doesn't mean you have to like it, which is a bit damning, but you may be right on that point. Well, I don't know. I'm going to, I'll back your play here because I always feel like, when when a movie comes out and people seem to hate it or love it, I find my I find myself sort of gravitating towards those types of movies because, you know, there's there are a lot of really good movies. We see a lot of them even recently. You know, we just finished uh, the 90th Academy Awards uh, last weekend. Oh, God, yeah. We see a lot of movies that are that are just competent or or good competent or not even like not yeah. even bad but there there are there are no risks taken in them and you know that yeah, you're going to judge them yeah. you're going to judge them on a scale of pretty good to good um because they're designed to be that way yeah and it's the, fine when movies are boring when yeah they're, it's fine it's that's it yeah i've talked on the podcast before about the fact that when i was a kid growing up my dad used to describe everything is fine he would always oh. be like oh movie was, <laughs> movie was fine and i hated him for it and then i got to a point where I was like, oh, he's right. Most movies are fine. <laughs> yeah. And it's the ones the ones that do something weird that, that you just you want to hold on to forever. So yeah. I will I'll fess up and say that the more people fight about a wrinkle in time, the more I want to see it and the more I feel myself warming to it. Not that I was ever against yeah. it to begin with, but I usually try and stay on the fence about stuff and, and the like the the right just the the right few critics, people who tend to gravitate towards genre stuff and have a good balance <laughs> of those plus the wrong critics that seem to really hate it. I'm just like, oh yeah, this is, I feel like this is a movie that I can get behind now yeah. in a way that I may not have been able to before. I definitely though, I have a hard limit to how much I can hear about a movie before seeing it. Like um, if the discussion or like the takes on the timeline reach kind of a, uh, a boiling point before, F, before I go see it, occasionally it will kind of just stop me from seeing a movie. Like um, because uh, Darren Aronofsky's mother like did the festival circuit before it like did press and then before it came out it people had been arguing about it for so long that I got sick of it <laughs> fortunately though I feel like this is coming out soon enough that I won't um obviously I can't because we'll be talking about it later but I won't feel that fatigue before going into it that raises a good question too so I'm gonna ask you about that you know do you do you enjoy these wide release type films because there isn't a couple of months worth of hype you know movies like a wrinkle in time don't play yeah. the festival circuit they tend to to have a premiere that takes place a week or two weeks before the movie opens wide you know do you, is it is, is it better or worse to not have to spend that period of time like discussing it or pre-discussing it or hearing other people discussing it 
Uh, I think it's kind of a mixed blessing. Like, in this case, because they screened it basically almost right before it opened, there just wasn't enough time. But I there there have been... If you ask me to name them, I couldn't. But there have been other movies, other, like, big movies like this recently where they've screened them... Um, enough in advance where people have been talking about it for ages like black panther screened fairly early and there was i think about a month before it actually came out people had been talking about it already but it was lucky that the consensus was that it was good and it wasn't generating these quote-unquote hot takes before um everyone else could see it um for festival stuff i feel like it's kind of rare that anything is so big that people are arguing about it for the entire duration of when it plays at the festival to when it actually comes out. Like usually it'll fizzle out or something like that and then start back up uh, again, but there'll be enough of a gap where I can forget about it before seeing it. Fair. So going into this movie then a pair of questions for you. Let's, let's play best case and worst case scenario. (laughs) If you, if you watch a wrinkle in time and you really responded to it, you really love it, it you know, it did everything it was everything that you wanted to see in the movie. What what's that end result look like? Like what are the what did it do to succeed that made you like it? Um I think it, basically if it does what every Pixar movie has done to me, which is uh hit me emotionally and make me cry, I'll deem it a success. <laughs> I'm very uh simple. To, it does it, it does seem to have a lot of those um like father daughter lost and dying in space sort of things which i know always get me pretty yeah. well those those are always that definitely screams pixar like the lost parent yeah. i just watched coco and i couldn't stop crying for like the entire last 15 minutes it was awful okay okay so if if you sob your way through a wrinkle in time that means it was a good yeah. movie um and then you know if if it misses the boat um for you if you fall on the other side of the spectrum what do you think are the what are the reasons for that um maybe because the main reason i can think of that i wouldn't like a wrinkle in time is maybe if it hewed too close to like the blockbuster formula that has kind of become a science at this point and less of an art um i discussed this a little bit in the last time we talked in that one of the reasons that I'm kind of lukewarm about Marvel movies is that they've become so much part of a machine that a lot of them feel the same. Obviously Black Panther is an exception as are the ones that are the most kind of separate from that big universe. But there is like a formula where they go, here's the plot or here's like roughly a plot. Uh, Here are the story beats that we're going to hit. Here's the big fight at the end. Um, Everything looks this one certain way and that's it. Like if there's not, if it's so kind of rung through the studio ringer that I, there's nothing art, uh, like remaining of the filmmaker's vision or the, any artistic vision left in it, then it's it's kind of a drag for me. Okay, so that's the spectrum, mm-hmm. and let's let's end up invariably somewhere in the middle. Um, now, on a scale of one to five, Karen, what do you think you're going to give Wrinkle in Time coming out of the theater? I think like in the vicinity of seven or eight. That's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping for. On a scale of one to five, that's incredible. Oh my god, one to five. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's all right. I would have gotten angry emails about that one, so I have to, I have to, I have to make sure that we adhere to the rules of the system. Yeah, it's like, what's she doing? Yeah, uh, three point five for territory. Yeah, I that it feels to me like a three point five movie as well. Um, mm. You know, and the math, the math on that, I think, is always that. 
to me a three is that perfectly fine which probably yeah you know goes to show goes to show that i grade on a more generous scale than a lot no, of other me critics too. But... i like to like movies i i don't i don't yeah like what's that. wrong with that yeah yeah, it's like to me, if, if a movie shouldn't get a one, like you're not going to watch a movie that has a one or a one point five. That just shouldn't be on your radar. It should not be something you are physically able to go to a movie theater not, and not see. Not willingly. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's punishment. So like anything above yeah. that is just you know, it, it, it's it's more likely to be for a bad film. Like a two and a half is usually not great, but like three is about average, and three point five is like it was okay, but man, it had some moments and. Mm. Based on all the hype that I've heard so far, I'm going to say that A Wrinkle in Time is pretty okay, but man, it had some moments, and a 3.5 sounds perfect for that. 100% agree. All right. Well, then we are going to we're going to actually go watch this thing. So uh, the next time that you hear from us, we'll have watched A Wrinkle in Time, and we will be ready to talk about it. And we will weigh in once and for all on the idea of film criticism versus culture criticism. I hope you're ready, Karen. It'll be the definitive answer. Yeah, you can just print that and put that in a college syllabus or something. We're done. (laughs) Okay, so we are back and we have now seen A Wrinkle in Time. And as a warning, you should know how this works by now, but if you don't, We are going to go into this with full spoilers. We're going to talk about anything and everything about A Wrinkle in Time we want. So now is the time to walk away if you haven't seen the movie or if you haven't read the book and you don't want to be spoiled. If you're sticking around, we're assuming you're in it to win it. So we're going to to move forward with that in mind. Um, Karen, let's start with the top of the funnel, big, broad impressions. What were your overall reactions to A Wrinkle in Time? Um, I thought it was fine. I didn't really have any huge complaints. Um, there was a lot of stuff I liked in it. Uh, I think our prediction from last time was pretty much exactly how I felt, where I was like, yeah, okay, sure, um, about the movie. I kind of wish it had been a little weirder, but I I can't pinpoint a time when I, d- I haven't wished that about a movie. So Fair. Um, so that's it. That was the podcast. It was fine. And uh, thank you guys for listening. <laughs> See you we'll hope to have Karen back as a guest. <laughs> um what did you think? Yeah, they, I mean, there's, they, I kind of, you know, I, I actually saw this um, just a few hours ago. So that was, that was my timeline oh, for wow. seeing this movie. So I, I know it's a little more fresh for me than it is for you. Um, but I kind of, I'm kind of inclined to call it fine, but I'm also sort of inclined to call it fine plus. Because mm-hmm. we talked a lot about the reaction to this and how people say, you know, can you, you know, can you be a fan of Ava DuVernay without, you know, disliking the movie? Does it affect how we talk about it? And I think that A Wrinkle in Time, what makes it an interesting movie for me is that it actually, the answer, it answers that question really clearly. Like, yes, you can like this movie for all the things that it does well and still think that it's pretty mm-hmm. clunky. And at the end of the day, I think it's fine because its strengths are very strong and its weaknesses are just generic weaknesses, which automatically makes it more interesting of a Hollywood blockbuster than 99% yeah. of the things out there. So I'm wondering, let's start breaking this into kind of its disparate chunks then. So... Um, starting with the performances, because that's always a really good place to start. You know, there's a lot of, I haven't read the book, don't know what the characters, what the, um, the, the three misses are supposed to be. How did those three characters, the ones played by Mindy Kaling, Reese Witherspoon, and Oprah Winfrey, how did they play out for you in the film? Um, pretty charming. The only one that I, I guess I didn't really care for was Mindy Kaling's, but that had nothing to do with her, um, and more to do with the character concept, which is that she speaks basically in quotes from other people 
um which is something that i feel like i would find cool in theory but in practice i was like oh i I don't really care for this especially when she like also quoted hamilton um to like stay up to date as opposed to 1960 some or which is when the book was written um but yeah i really liked reese witherspoon is always just really really good she's always very extremely charming i love the little storyline between her and zach galifianakis um and it's impossible not to love oprah like i think my favorite moment in the movie is when um the kids are flying on a transformed with reese witherspoon's back and charles wallace reaches out and touches a giant oprah's face like i can't stop thinking about that scene because i thought it was incredible (laughs) yeah yeah it was um i was surprised not um, not that the three of them are charismatic on screen because of course they are. They, yeah, they're, they're, right. they're they're institutions in and of themselves. <laughs> um, but uh, you know there were there were some things that stood out to me. Some of the some of the the modeling. You're you're sort of in the movie. You're sort of thrown in to the mix with these characters, and and you kind of you don't really get a lot of time to adjust from the real world to the fantasy yeah. world, which is. You know, it's it's one of those things you want to be cautious of calling it a double standard because if you think about like all of the kids' books too, like the never ending story and stuff like that, Princess Bride, like they just sort of throw you into the mix mm. as well. So if a movie is not good, you don't want to ding it for something that every other fantasy does. But especially because there's so much affectation with the three misses, misses, uh, it really it, it does take you a moment to get used to them. And I think by the end of the movie, I was a big fan of what Witherspoon had done. I thought that. The, her scene, especially the chemistry that she had with Zach Galifianakis, the chemistry that we, Reese Witherspoon had with Zach Galifianakis, which is not a sentence I thought I was going to say before <laughs> I watched this movie. Yeah, it's definitely a if you can believe it kind of character scenario, but it does work. They're so cute. Yeah, they're adorable together. And, you know, like giant, giant Oprah, who is basically just <laughs> being Oprah in the best possible way. Like, <laughs> it is, you know, these are, these are larger than life children's fantasy characters. And, I don't think that it worked for me kind of for the same reasons you were talking about. There's like, especially with Mindy Kaling's character, you yeah. know, the idea is nice. It doesn't work as well in practice, but I couldn't help yeah. but think throughout the movie, you know, these are things that there are going to be kids that see this and just like, it blows their mind out of the side of their head. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a lot weirder and more idiosyncratic than anything you'd find in a typical kids movie. Yeah. And Speaking of the kids, I mean, first and foremost, we have this this young cast kind of in the foreground. What did you think of uh, of Storm Reed and company kind of doing the I heavy love, lifting? I, yeah, for sure. I loved Storm Reed. I thought she was really great. Um, she just has so much charisma, and she's so she's so convincing. Like, I think she is also kind of on the movie's slightly affected wavelength. Like everything, like a lot of things were like a little bit exaggerated, but the stuff that she kind of dials down is more um, down to earth about, like she was so good. Um, I also really liked the kid who played Calvin. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought that their sort of uh, semi love story was also quite cute as an adolescent kind of um, first crush kind of thing. Um, Charles, I was talking to a friend also about Charles Wallace, who is kind of insane in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, he is doing such an affectation. Like it's not, it seems like he came out of like an, an anime or something like that because his affectation is so exaggerated and pronounced. And I don't think that it's a bad thing. Cause I was so fascinated by him the whole time, but it definitely feels, especially towards the end when he, 
is possessed by the it, it feels a lot like he kind of came out of a completely different movie and is just obliterating the one that he's currently in, which is very strange to watch, but I enjoyed it. There were times where I was like, this I know this isn't the actor that plays young Sheldon, but like, is it the actor that plays young Sheldon? Because that's sort of like I mean, not having seen the show, only knowing the CBS ads that come on constantly. I was yeah. like, this is it's like that show fell into this movie. That's hysterical. <laughs> I hadn't even considered that, but I could I could definitely see it. Plus, I mean, we need to acknowledge the fact that his name is Charles Wallace. The rule of three holds that he will grow up to be a serial killer, whatever his faux potential is in the film. Yeah. Like, he, he's he's destined to kill and kill again. It's going to happen. It's 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 only um, it's going to be a chronic situation. I want to I want to talk real quick though because you mentioned Levi Miller's Calvin, um, sort of the love interest for Storm Reed's character. Um, mm. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, but there were moments. Uh, you know, this is obviously this is a movie that that um, knows, and, and you know, the screenwriters Jennifer Lee, the director Ava DuVernay, they they are aware of blockbusters. They are open and they talk about what Hollywood needs to do and how they need to portray characters to be more inclusive and to be less, you know, derivative towards people. There were times, especially with Calvin, where I sort of felt like the movie was very gently flipping the script on what we see in a lot of blockbusters. Because mm-hmm. Calvin's character is adorable simply because he spends the whole movie just like worshiping Storm Reed's character, which is basically what he does. Like he thinks that she is the smartest, the coolest she is. So both of those things are well justified. Yes, it's so cute. Yeah. But you know, you think of these kind of, you know, a lot of these classic kind of movies, um, movies we've seen before where the wonder kid is the male kid and like the girl is just there to be like, oh my gosh, he's so awesome. I like, it was just, it was one of those little things that really resonated with me. I was like, yeah, Calvin, just like sit on the sidelines and be like, damn, she's great. Because that, it, it, it doesn't, it's not heavy handed. It doesn't feel like they're sermonizing about the role of gender in blockbuster movies. It was just adorable and it worked. For a hundred percent. It's just so sweet. And also in particular, the bit where um, uh, Storm Reed's character, where Meg is feeling insecure about having her natural hair, like uh, having that also be a detail in their relationship and how he, it's not just that he is like enamored of her personality or her smarts, but he's like literally everything about her, like without change is beautiful to him, which was so, it was just so cute. Yeah. And there were two, I, I, um, I can't speak to this. I just know that I read the article. One of the film school rejects writers, um, Paula wrote an article for the Hollywood reporter, um, heat vision. And not that long ago that talked about one of the things I'm, I'm going to link this in the article. Cause I feel like it's, it's a good read for people that are interested, but one of the things that stood out to her for a wrinkle in time as someone that grew up in a biracial family is the fact that mm-hmm. they don't, they don't really hit that hard with Meg's character either. She doesn't have that crisis of identity. She doesn't, you know, she isn't caught. Well, she's quite literally caught between two worlds, but she's not caught between the two worlds that we're used to in those sort of movies where, you know, she doesn't get to just be a kid. She doesn't get to just be kind of growing up. And again, it's like the, the way that this movie deals with some stuff that we're just not used to seeing, but doesn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't do it too heavy, doesn't call attention to itself, just says like, this is what happens when this story looks like this, you know, when when people like this and characters like this are engaged in this story, like, it doesn't need to be, you know, anything too profound. It can just be authentic and heartfelt and real. Those were the parts of A Wrinkle in Time that I really, that really resonated with me and that I really responded to. Yeah, a hundred percent agree. Like, um, I guess I, I was kind of thinking about this with Love, Simon 2, which comes out this week, where it's just like, they're kids just allowed to be kids and the things that we normally uh even like just up to like 10 years ago that we would like pick out in 
movies being like, oh, this is something that they have to be hung up about or, or X, Y, Z. Like they have to be hung about hung up about being biracial. Or they have to be hung up about um, whether or not they're gay. Like they're just allowed to be that. Like that is considered natural, and that's not the thing that's singled out in them. Right. Yeah. You. We cast them with intent, so we have to. The characters have to also, you know, carry the burden of what you know our casting decisions too. They can't just be like, no, we just, we it's just this happens to be a story about this amazing young woman that comes from a biracial family. You know, it doesn't it doesn't need to be part of the Hollywood structure. It can just be part of the story structure. Yeah, a hundred percent. So let's talk about the parents too, then, because um, you know I, they're not in the movie as much as everyone else, but I think that they they it, it almost even more than the fantasy stuff, like the parental connection and the flashbacks that we get to Chris Pine and Gugu Mbatha-Raz characters. I think are, are the most affecting part of the movies for sure. So let me, I'll, I'll we've been doing heavy conversation now, so I'm going to softball this for you. <laughs> Did Chris Pine in A Wrinkle in Time prove that he is the ultimate Chris? I still wouldn't be so sure. I feel like Thor Ragnarok's a pretty high bar to clear. Okay. All right. Did, was that, all right was then the what, did, what did you think of Pine? Um, no, he's, he's been the best Chris in the time ooh, for me, but that's good. That's fine. That's okay. fine. <laughs> uh, I still thought it was really, I'm a pine stand. What can I say? <laughs> a pine stand. Um, I still thought he was really good. Um, the scene where he reunites with Meg was very, very touching for me. Um, but I feel like he just wasn't really in it enough for me, for him to make that much of a big impression. Like, I don't think he was bad or I don't think um, he didn't make an impression, but I feel like he was second fiddle to the kid's and to the misses to a degree that I was that I didn't think it really significantly affected his Chris ranking. Now, when I ask, what did you think of kind of the way they dealt with his personal arc? Because you know, my wife and I saw um, Phantom Thread for the first time just a few weeks ago, and as soon as the credits, <laughs> as soon as the credits rolled, she turned and looked at me and she said, "She was like, I will die if I have to watch another movie about like a cruel male genius type." Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so this, this I think, does some really like, – the way that they deal with the father character and the way that they kind of make him make amends for the decisions that he made, again, it felt like it was sort of in dialogue with a lot of Hollywood's um, you know, award-winning and blockbuster films we've seen. What did you think of that parental arc? I don't think – I don't think that it comes out – he comes out on top of that. I think it definitely um, – it passes more judgment on him than you normally see from like those staggering genius type roles. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, if it did feel like in the ending, they weren't really letting him off the hook for kind of what had happened. And even though he kind of denies that he wouldn't have left them for anything in the world, the movie and also his actions after that do imply that that's exactly what he did. And that's why he got caught um, in a different world to begin with, um, which is refreshing because I feel like that's not, an easy thing to puzzle out and also generally not something that's uh, discussed in that way in a children's movie. Like it's much more often seen in a movie that is quote unquote meant, meant for adults. Um, yeah. Right. Um, do you think, uh, I was going to ask about Google and Batara. What did you think of sort of their relationship in this too? Because they have to do a lot with these two characters, you, you know, to create equals, to create partners, mm -hmm. to create the loss in a very short amount of time on screen. Um, I like the dynamic between them, but I think it harkens back to a little bit to what you said in that I did feel like it was a bit of, yes, she is a genius and he knows that she's a genius, but she does still have to rein, in, rein him in a little bit. 
um, in terms of how, and which is again, why he disappears because um, he isn't thinking about it in the way that she said, like they need to take it slow or they need to be more careful about what they're doing. Um, I don't know. Again, that was something that I felt like was very slim in comparison to what was being uh, presented in terms of the kids um, growing throughout their journeys to get him back. Um, I don't know. I, it might have hit you differently because you actually are married. Uh, it's possible. Um, and my <laughs> wife is a genius. So that's I certainly felt that pain there. You know, it was it was an interesting... I think it was an interesting dynamic to me just because I'm not used to seeing um, I'm not used to seeing those sort of relationships in these movies seem like such a stable partnership. Mm-hmm. You know, usually there's something that um, that goes tragically wrong or usually it's clear that like one character is going to pull away um, or that one character is willing to risk it all for whatever. And, and I think, I think that's part of what, um, I know. Again, it's one of those, it's the small things, not the big things that I like about Wrinkle in Time. I think the fact that he goes away, he finds what he was looking for, he comes away disappointed, and he ends up having to sort of make amends with his family for it. Like that to me, that that is a really interesting arc for his character to have, not one we typically see. And the only thing I will say is that um, I wanted, I, I, I would like to see, or I would have liked to have had maybe just a few more seconds there between the two of them at the end to sort of yeah. him have to earn that back with her a little bit too. Cause he earns it. He earns it back with his daughter. He earns her back with his son, but like Mbata rock kicks ass in this movie as she yeah. does in all movies. Yeah. And so like, you know, you gotta, you gotta, yeah. yeah, she deserves, she does deserves a little bit more than I'm sorry. I'm late or whatever yeah, that line he sure. says when he shows like, up. What? <laughs> I can't imagine being in that position where if my husband disappeared for four years and then just showed up and said, I'm sorry, I'm late. Just like, excuse me. <laughs> That's what you open with. Like technically you're legally dead. So double oh. jeopardy. I can kill you right <laughs> now. And nothing bad will happen to me. I've seen that movie. We've all seen that movie. Let's talk about some of the visuals for this too, because, you know, I think that this is um, the only word that comes to mind first is bright. It's certainly oh, yeah. a bright movie. Uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of ideas that are being played with on screen about how to present these magical worlds. So um, the look and feel of a wrinkle in time, especially once once they go through the or once they tesseract or what is it called like tesser yeah. once they tesser it, the the language is a little weird. Um, how did that? How, what did you think of that? What was your impressions? Uh, I think I think I saw somebody describe it as a lisifying trapper keeper, which a hundred percent I agree with in terms of how bright and how. Uh, sort of stylized everything is um i liked it up until i could tell how much of it was being green screened um which i didn't think was going to be a problem given the budget on this movie but especially when they're all in the like white uh dome thing i was like oh like yeah i can see the green around everyone's edges i can see that this is clearly fake but like the beginning when they're in the field and stuff i really liked um I was also kind of curious about how much of it uh, diverged from the books because a friend told me that um, there's a bit where Mrs. Uh, Reese Witherspoon turns into like a flying plant. Um, and apparently in the books, I again, I do not recall, she turns into a winged centaur creature and they go to like a whole planet that has a bunch of winged centaurs on it, which I kind of wish had been the case instead although that he's very closely again to my wishing that everything was weirder all the time um so i I guess i 
uh, am a little bit skewed in terms of perspective on that. Um, I mean, you're you're never going to hate a movie for being too weird. You can say a lot of things about a movie that's too weird, but you'll never hate it. So I, I back your point yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah, I I mostly liked it. Um, what did you think about it? Because I've heard a lot of a lot of different opinions. Like some people thought it was just too much, and other people um, have really liked it just for how bright it is. Yeah, it's it's. Um... I like how bright it is. I like how unapologetically bright it is. You know, I, it's one of those things where you think of Hollywood stylistic choices yeah. in sort of waves. And, you know, we, we're in, we're well, well, well in the red when it comes to sort of the, the dim, dark and, and gritty visuals that we see in some of these movies. But admittedly, you know, 15 years ago when I was still in college or whatever, that's like, we wanted that. We wanted movies to mm-hmm. embrace it and be more mature. Um, so there's definitely there's definitely cycles to it. And now I think we're starting to get in a place where we're going to see a wave of Hollywood movies that aren't afraid to be bright, aren't afraid um, to be joyous, for lack of a better word, aren't afraid to be to be happy. And I, I like that a lot. And I like that idea for this movie a lot. In practice, um, you know, I think somebody I don't remember who it might have been Rob Hunter referred to. Um, some of the special effects in another movie, Black Panther, I think, as soupy. And that's a that's a description that I just can't seem to get out of my head now for whenever I watch um, really like SFX-driven films that don't get it quite right. I would say that a lot of the, the digital effects and a lot of the CGI in A Wrinkle in Time is kind of soupy. Yeah, I can't. And can't it, it takes that. you out of it. It's just that, you know, there are there are moments when it's really good and there are certainly some ideas and some creatures and character designs that I like. Again, weirdly, Galifianak is one of the best parts of this movie. Yeah. Um, his whole underground yeah. cavern thing, that was, that was the design on that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it sort of, it was unlike some of the other stuff that we saw and a good strong balance between character and setting. You know, they did a good job of matching this outlandish character to an environment that seemed to make sense to them. Um, but yeah, there were just there's so many times in the movie where I was just like, eh, this doesn't look so good. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. But like, oh, I didn't love that. It's kind of, I guess, the bright uh, version of what I like to call the Transformers effect, where there's just so much going on that you don't want to look at any of it anymore. Yeah, and they did do a good job. They did a, a good job of kind of taking you back uh, every now and then to sort of the, the quote unquote real world, the earth, yeah. the flashbacks that um, the characters had. And that kind of, that kept it balanced for me because weirdly the fantasy elements of this just weren't as strong, I think, as the, the more uh, minute character driven beats. Yeah, Whenever totally the characters agree. are talking to each other, I liked it. Whenever the characters were running to or from or around stuff, it just wasn't as good because the visuals weren't as good. Which yeah. isn't to say that you know maybe a different look might have made it better, but uh, yeah, there weren't there weren't a lot of times where I found myself being super impressed by the the world building that I'd seen, which was surprising for a movie like this. Yeah, I didn't love the last sequence or the climactic sequence either between Meg and Charles Wallace and like in the middle of the it or whatever, like when it's all just like black vines. I wasn't, I didn't love that. Like when it went kind of the opposite of bright and was just a lot of stuff instead. Yeah, I did like, I did like um, having her face off against Mirror Her. That's always, I'm a sucker for Mirror Universe <laughs> challenges anytime I see yeah. them. But yeah, it was, it was, it felt like I found myself thinking of, um, I mean, any number of things, but the uh, sort of like the second guardian of the, of the galaxy or so the Lord of the Rings, it just seems to be 
a lot of tentacles and brain structures and stuff. We've seen that in, in uh, we've seen that in enough now. And I wish there'd been How something. How dare that you was... invoke the Lord of the Rings in a negative way? No, 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 no. I, that they were sort of the you know they they set the stage for a lot of that. But we're used to those. <laughs> we're used to those sort of sort of visuals. Yeah. And I would have, I guess, if anything, you're absolutely right. Like I wish that they had done stuff a little bit weirder. Like I wish I'd seen some stuff mm-hmm. in this movie that I had feel like I'd never seen anywhere else before. And like, yeah, maybe it wouldn't have worked, but my God, when it did, it probably would have been awesome. Yeah, yeah. Again, that's why I was thinking of the bit where Charles Wallace touches Oprah's face, where I was like, this is super weird. And I yeah, that's love a perfect, it. It's a perfect yeah. example. It was weird. It drew attention to itself. You weren't sure if you liked it, but when the movie was over, you were like, that was a good moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think what else we can talk about with, uh, with the Wrinkle and Tie and stuff. So we've got the characters. We've got the, the visuals. We've got the storytelling. Ooh, I know. Um, um, what do you, what do you want to say, Karen? In love, I was not in love with the music. Uh, I thought the songs were good, but the way that the pop songs were worked into the movie as like mini music videos, I was not a huge fan of. Really? It just, every song brought so much attention to itself. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'll ask you this. Did you, did you feel any kind of maybe um, 80s throwback-ishness in that? Because I remember thinking of stuff like The NeverEnding Story where every transitional ah. thing was sort of a, a musical number too. You know, that that maybe that was a little bit of nostalgia playing for me because I was like, yeah, they're not talking. Of course, there's going to be a pop song playing. That's just how this genre works. <laughs> I am. I, maybe I'm just not familiar enough with 80s movies and that I did not think of that at all. But I'm more inclined to feel kindly about it now that you have framed it that way. No, no. Yeah. If I see it again, I'll have to think about that in that terms, because um, yeah. there was I will say this. There is a lot more pop music than I was expecting. Yeah, there's a lot. I think we've reached a point, um, we kind of reached a point now where Hollywood tends to sort of like, maybe they'll have one or two songs and they'll save like the big song for the end credits, but they don't, yeah. they don't do a lot of new music in the movie anymore. And so this was a surprise that there was so much new music in the movie. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was flexing a little bit. <laughs> yes, it was. Excellent word choice. It was. <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, let's end kind of the movie description thing with, um, going forward, you know, we have now seen the film, so we've discussed the reaction to it, sort of the multitude of reactions to it, both going into the film and coming out of it. What do you think A Wrinkle in Time says about film criticism or says about Hollywood or says about box office or, or whatever you want to say? Like, what do you think the ultimate um, uh, legacy of this film is going to be? Um, I hope I'm, I mean, I wasn't super impressed with it, but I hope the overall legacy is a good one. Um, I'm inclined to agree with the opinion that's been going around that it's being graded on a slightly unfair curve. Um, in that I think you mentioned something to this effect earlier where it's faults are pretty much the same as any of the major blockbusters that have come out over the past 10 years. Like they're kind of the same faults as any of say the Marvel, the more boring Marvel movies and stuff like that, but they're being more picked on um, because it's coming possibly because it's coming from a female director and stars a female character. Um, And I'm, I am more inclined to agree with that than most of the other takes about a wrinkle in time on the internet. Um, I'm not sure how much I will be thinking about it like a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, but um, I don't regret having seen it. And there was some stuff in it that I really liked. So yeah. What about you? 
Yeah, I think I think you're right on that. Um, I, I will say this, and maybe you'll agree with me. There, there does seem to be getting a, um, a pass on some of the stuff that doesn't work. But I also would argue to those that say that that's not fair, um, that we tend to maybe be a little too hard on that stuff in other movies too. I think there's definitely a sense of, um, you know, we get we get tired of types of movies, mm-hmm. and so we tend to go in on each of those types of movies harder than we might if they were sort of a one-off. Mm-hmm. So when I see something like A Wrinkle in Time and it's making sort of the same mistakes that I've seen from other movies that play at the box office, I don't feel like I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I'm like, whatever, those are problems in other films. But I, I think a lot of the conversation centers around the fact that people like to like to take shots at movies yeah. and when they don't then there's some sort of questions there i i think this movie is fine i think a lot of movies honestly that i see in theaters are fine and i think if if people don't want to take want don't want to take this one as much to the mat i'm more inclined to treat that as a better trend towards how we talk about films than sort of an indictment of the way we're talking about this one in particular and sort of just to yeah, that's absolutely fair. to to end um, or to summarize all of that and how I feel about the movie as a whole. I think you're right. Like I'm not probably going to think about this a lot. This is not going to be a film at the end of the year when I'm putting my top ten list together that I that I think about and I'm like maybe I should revisit that and see if it, maybe it's better than I thought it was. I feel pretty comfortable with with where it uh, landed with me. But yeah. if there is if there are if I see people um, writers that I follow that write really impassioned defenses or reviews or celebrations of a wrinkle in time i'm absolutely gonna i'm going to read those i'm gonna enjoy them because Mm -hmm. it's really fun to watch people take to a movie and a wrinkle in time is for better for worse depending on where you come from a movie that's that people it's good to see people taking to even if you don't personally like it yourself yeah yeah it's a it's a positive force it's a net gain it is a net gain and I mean, as long as as long as Duvernay gets to continue making movies, I'm happy because let's face it, she's among the best of us. So, yeah, yeah, we need more films from her. Mm-hmm. All right, before we give this the final score, then Karen, I usually ask my guests, and you've had some time to prepare for this, hopefully, so you have one in mind. Uh, what is a film that you would pair with A Wrinkle in Time? Either you know something that you think is better, but along the same lines, or something you think people should go and seek out if they enjoyed this film. Um, I was thinking it is, I picked out a movie that is coming up on its 10th anniversary, which is Studio Ghibli's Ponyo, um, which I think is another, uh, just nice movie about a young girl and also kind of weird in terms of visual style and the stuff that happens in it. Like I wasn't expecting a whole bunch of it and there's a lot of silliness and it's also, um, focused on family and friendship as well. So that would be my double feature recommendation, a wrinkle in time and then Ponyo. Nice. Or the other way around. I'm not not picky. Uh, I am tempted to throw the Phantom Tollbooth out there, uh, just because I love the book as a kid, and the book deals. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, I do not remember the movie well enough to make that recommendation, though. So I'm going to go. I was just about to say I didn't even remember there was a movie. It's an anime. Yeah, it's an animated film. I think it came out more or less around the time. Um, I I have no idea if it's any good or not. Which is why instead of Phantom Tollbooth, um, I am going to recommend a movie that I. A lot of times people say that they are, you know, well, this is a movie that only I love. I think this might actually legitimately be a movie that only I love. And that movie is M. Night Shyamalan's After Earth. After Earth is another film that deals with sort of that generational divide between parents and kids. It deals a lot with the the issues 
of fantasy and survival and having to save your parent from themselves and having to prove yourself. Uh, it has a lot of the same sort of flaws in terms of soupy special effects and stuff. But I think there are ab- I think there are moments of real triumph in that film. And I say that as somebody that doesn't actually particularly care for the films of M. Night Shyamalan. And I think that it is a movie that will be remembered more fondly and as sort of a progressive film that we maybe should have rallied to at the day, um, hopefully in 10 or 15 years time. I am, I continue to stump for After Earth. I think it is a movie that we were unfair to because of the nepotism (laughs) angle at the time. I think we will be kinder to it in the future. So go see After Earth after you see Wrinkle in Time. Absolutely respect that. Yep. And like I said, I might be the only one that stumps for that one. I, it is refreshing, though, to have a movie that um, that isn't just like, oh, everybody loves this movie and I love it, too. You're like, no, I, I legitimately love this film and I can't find anybody to back me up. On, <laughs> on that note, uh, final scores for Wrinkle in Time, Karen, what do you have? I give it one to five. Uh, 3.5, which is what I thought I would. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go a little bit lower than you. I'm going to say a three, um, but a warm three. You know, it's it's one of those <laughs> movies where sometimes sometimes you sink down to a three and sometimes you go up to a three. And like, this is a three that feels like a good three. And I, I've probably given bad movies threes before and been like, but it was totally fine. But this is like I totally fine plus. Yeah. So, yep. Three, it would, if I, if I did it, it was like three point whatever rounds down to three. So 3.24 or whatever. Yeah. All right. So that is it. That is the Wrinkle in Time podcast. Um, a movie that is fine, and we really, yeah. <laughs> we could have, we really could have ended it at that like first one minute mark and been just as good. What we thought would come to pass exactly did come to pass. It's nice when the conversation has that sort of, you know, it, it, it starts and ends on the same note. It's good continuity for Very the audience. Very chill, no stakes. If you are, if you are interested in listening, um, if I'm an audience member and I want to seek out your writing and follow you on social media, what is the best place to reach out to you, Karen? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Karen Wyhan, K-A-R-E-N-Y-H-A-N. And I link to pretty much all of my writing on there. So um, you can follow me for uh, my writing and also just tolerate my bad tweets. But yeah, that's the easiest way to find me on the internet. It's good tweets. And it's the kind of good <laughs> tweets that have a little trademark symbol, but like the ACI one too. So it's actually <laughs> done correctly. Um as for myself in this show, you can follow me on Twitter at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Follow the podcast at, at One Perfect Pod or follow the mothership at, at One Perfect Shot. And please uh, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, your podcast service of choice, and give us some feedback. Drop us a line. Send me a tweet. Don't send Karen a tweet. She doesn't need to read the viewer mail. Um, I'll curate <laughs> and send her the stuff that I like. But I got some nice um, tweets after the um, Justice League episode, actually. Oh, excellent. Okay, then tweet. Yeah, go ahead. No, tweet at Karen. I lied. <laughs> don't, don't, don't mention it to me at all. Just tell her she's a great guest and she should come back soon. <laughs> R.I.P. my mentors. 